This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rasland, today we are doing a special edition of A Bit of Culture, where we, we do occasionally, where we do a bit more in depth. And we're going to be speaking to, um, I'm going to claim her as Malaysian, her mother is Malaysian, and she is Annabelle Gallup. And I'm going to ask Annabelle to tell us what it is that she does. Hi, Cam. Thanks so much for inviting me on your program. It's really nice to have a chance to talk about what I do. So I'm, I work at the British Library here in London, which is the National Library of the UK. And I was appointed to my job. Um, it's quite a frighteningly long time ago now, about 35 years ago, as curator for Indonesian and Malay for Maritime Southeast Asia. And it's the job I still do now. So I've had a very long time to get to know the collection from the Malay world in the British Library. So in the British Library, I'm responsible for the collection of manuscripts, books, um, journals, newspapers, anything that's written in Malay or in the other languages of Maritime Southeast Asia. Um, So that means that you would have at the British Library uh, a, a very large collection, and, and you would include, for instance, um, the book Confessions of an Old Boy by Cam Ruslan. I'm sure that would be a, a <laughs> centerpiece of I'm the... I'm certain. I think that must be one of our, you know, most prized, you know, exhibits <laughs> that we bring out, trot out, you know, every time we have an exhibition. Um, Excellent. Um, yeah. So, you know, the British Library is the National Library of the UK, which means we have one copy of everything that's published in the UK. But we also still collect from all around the world anything that we estimate as being of lasting value and that absolutely goes for your publications. We would endeavour to collect and and have here. Good. Uh, I know you're lying, but anyway, I'm just going to I'm going to go with it. So the British Library collection is the largest or the second largest in the world after the, alongside the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. But the, the Malay Indonesian section, could you give us a sense of the scale of, of this particular collection? Sure. I mean, again, it's very difficult to de- when you're dealing with numbers because the British Library collection itself, I mean, I just had to look up again for my, for my own benefit, the latest numbers. And I think our collection um, con- consists of 170 million items. But, you know, these items range from books, what you think of as being in a library, like a book or a manuscript or a newspaper, to stamps, maps, drawings, photographs, patents. So, you know, it, they, they range from the quite substantial to the absolutely tiny. But the Malay collection is um, perhaps surprisingly to most people, not that big. So we have about 120 Malay manuscripts. Manuscripts just means anything written by hand. So it doesn't tell you that it's very important. It just means it's, it's just a very clear definition. It's written by hand, not printed. And these date from at the earliest, the 17th century. There's some, there's some letters from the 17th century, um, right up to the early 20th century. But what is actually interesting is our probably more important collection from Malaysia is our collection of early printing and the reason it's such an important collection is that while the British were in were the colonial masters of that region um, they promulgated certain legislation which sort of mirrored the legislation which was already in place in the UK to to ensure that one copy of everything printed um, was sent back to the British Museum in London. And so the British Library has probably the best collection in the world. 
of early printing in Malay, initially from the Strait settlements only, so from Singapore and Malacca, from Penang, then a bit later from the Federated Malay States and Johor, and then later the whole of Malaya. And this Con this um, this process continued of sending one copy back to London right up until Merdeka in 1957. So it's a wonderful, a quite incredible snapshot of not everything that was published in Malaysia, but you know um, a very high proportion. And the interesting thing is that because we didn't select what was you know what was acquired, we didn't uh, you didn't get a librarian looking through lists and say oh we'll have this but not that we captured everything that was published, means that we have an amazing collection of like sports magazines, fashion magazines, early comics, um, as well as what you might call the more highbrow literary um, and historical works. And you yourself have a, a Brunei connection. So presumably uh, this also includes Sabah and Sarawak and Brunei yes. as well. Yes, it does. But there was surprisingly little printing and publishing going on in Brunei and Sabah and Sarawak. Um, so there was a, there was a tiny bit of mission printing um, in Sarawak and in, in the 19th century. But um, in terms of commercial printing, very, very little happened in the 19th or even early 20th centuries in Brunei. Um, I'm hard pressed to think of, I mean, the things like the early government reports would have been printed in Singapore. There wouldn't have been a printing press in Brunei for a very long time. So the collections from, from Borneo, from Sarawak, Sabah and Brunei are much smaller than from the peninsula. So just to be clear then, the, the, uh, the documents, letters written from, from Malaya to London HQ by mm. civil servants, that would be at the the National Archives and not yes. with you. Um, um, yes, there's, it, it, it very, very much depends on, on the date because, I mean, the part of this sort of enormous colonial project, it, it didn't start as a government endeavour. It started as a commercial endeavour led by the East India Company, which was set up as a trading um, company in London in 1600. And that evolved into the sort of, you know, giant... Um, um, corporation um, by the by the 19th century. So when the, the, the setting up of a British settlement in Penang, for example, was not done by the British government, but by the East India Company. And the British Library, um, where I work now, includes the library and records of the old East India Company, and then, which became the India office um, under the Foreign Office. So actually, we have all the records which were created under the old East India Company before it came to an end in 1857. Um, and then there was a brief period of crossover until 1867. So essentially, we have all the what you would call government official records from the Strait settlements from the peninsula until 1867. And after that date, you find them at the National Archives at Kew. So if we if we jump back then to the earlier documents that you have, uh, manuscripts mm -hmm. that you have, which are really, I think, your particular field of uh, study, um, where did they come from? How did how did the British Library come to have them? Are these all of the uh, doc manuscripts that were ever written in Malay at that time? Um it might also surprise people to know that the, actually the British Library collection is not that big or that important compared to other collections, whether within the UK or in Europe. So we have about, 
a hundred Malay manuscript volumes, books, and a couple of hundred letters and documents in written in Malay. Even within Britain, in, within the UK, the collections of the Royal Asiatic Society, of um, the, the Library of the School of SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, even I think probably Cambridge University Library, um, are bigger and more important than ours in terms of the number of Malay manuscripts. What we've been particularly um, fortunate about in the British Library is that thanks to the great generosity of patrons, and I will mention in particular um, an American couple, William and Judith Bollinger, who are based in Singapore. We've been able to digitize every single one of our Malay manuscripts, and they are completely open on, uh, openly accessible online. So anyone, anywhere in the world in Malaysia, whether you live in Perlis or KL or London or New York, you can read all our Malay manuscripts online for free um, with a cup of coffee at your desk at night. Um, and this, that project to digitize our Malay manuscripts meant that it gave me an opportunity for the first time to look through every single manuscript as we prepared them for digitization. So I've now got a much better idea of what we hold in the collection um, compared to before. Of course, they're all fascinating. I mean, the point about manuscripts is that they're all unique. They were written by hand and so no manuscript is the same as another one. I mean, a very famous text like the Hikayat Hang Tua, there are probably about 30 or between 30 and 40 manuscripts which are known to exist all over the world. Many of them in Malaysia, some in, in, the, in the Netherlands, and, and we've got two copies in the British Library, but each one will be slightly different. And so the valuable work to be done is to look at these texts in, in detail and to, and to compare them. But that's really the strength of the British Library collection is literary manuscripts. So it's really only in the early 19th century when, when this is the big colonial project under the aegis of the East India Company begins to take off. Um, with the, for example, the establishment of Penang and, um, and, and settlements in Singapore and the British occupation of Java in the early 19th century. And certain personalities whose names will be very familiar, like Thomas Stamford Raffles, John Layden, Colin Mackenzie um, and John Crawford. These were all officials of the East India Company who were all working together at the same time in, a, in the first two decades of the um, 19th century. These were the major collectors who were responsible for over half of the Malay manuscripts in the British Library today. So that's how they came into the, in, into the collection. And it, the manuscripts we have very much reflect their interests. They, like, they were interested in literature, history and indigenous legal institutions. Um, what they weren't interested in is, is Islam. And so our collections are not very representative in that way. They are representative of the interests of the collectors, but not necessarily of what was written and read um, in Malay society itself. Well, uh, thank you very much, Annabel Gallup, uh, head curator of the Malay collection at uh, the British Library. Did I get that right? That's fine. That's absolutely fine. Good. And see you again in a moment. Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, on this uh, more in-depth A Bit of Culture episode. And we're going to be speaking to Annabel Gallup, uh, head curator of the Malay Collection at uh, the British Library. So I saw the recent uh, exhibition of uh, some of some Stamford Raffles uh, collection that was held in Singapore. And one of the interesting aspects is he, he would paint the things that he saw himself, but he painted them 
in in a style that sort of gave a kind of Greco-Roman sort of uh, classical impression of these statues that were in Java. So he's 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 drawing on his own experiences, his own knowledge, but he's also mm-hmm. pushing the eye of the English viewer to see it, I think, as a sort of classical civilization that they understand. And and I'm wondering though now, here we are in 2021, from the manuscripts that you have in the British Library and the ones that you've read outside the British Library, are you able to see, are people seeing uh, the world of maritime Southeast Asia as it actually was lived by Southeast Asians? Or are we still conditioned through these texts to see it through the eyes of the European collectors? I mean, you've really put your finger on the nub there, Kerm, in the sense of that the at the time when this major collecting of Malay manuscripts happened, um, it was very much in the grip of Enlightenment ideas and their focus on the classical ideal. And if when transferred to Southeast Asia, that... Um, emphasize the glories of the pre-Islamic era, the Hindu Buddhist um, civilizations, kingdoms in Southeast Asia, which um, left behind amazing monuments in stone. We all know Borobudur, Prambanan, um, and the temples and the incredible um, sculptural legacy that they left us. Now, with the coming of Islam, it's um, it's in very interesting. Yesterday, I just had to give um, a lecture on Islamic art of Southeast Asia. And I had to sort of um, make the point that it's um, the Islamic art of Southeast Asia is a more difficult um, topic to study than the pre-Islamic Hindu Buddhist art, because there you're very much focusing on what is there. You can study Borobudur, you can study a, a sculpture um, um, of, of, of the Buddha. Um, but when you look at Islamic art, you, you're really forced to consider absences as well as presences. So you look at sort of your, your intellectually, I think it, 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 you're really stretched to consider the spaces, um, the silences and why they are there. So for example, in Islamic art, you've taken away the obvious iconography, but you are left with a, um, an emphasis on proportion and um, and the power of, of space. I mean, literally with my work on um, Malay manuscript illumination. It's the question of how the decoration is arranged on an empty plate, and it's the um, the contrast between decoration and and emptiness, which is an essential part of the aesthetics. So when you apply that to um, to the manuscripts, yes, you know we are in that early period. We were very. It was very much focused on um, a yearning, particularly in literary um, in. Malay literature uh, are looking backwards to the impact, particularly of the, um, the the great Hindu epics like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, which manifested in Malay literature in the forms of the Hikayat Sri Rama, um, Hikayat Pandawa Jaya, and other and other earlier forms. And there was very much from these British colonial scholars a yearning for what had they regarded as had been lost um, with the coming of Islam. And I hope that now we are. Um, much more um, aware of, of of what a blinkered and narrow view that is. I think the things which has the thing which has really um, revolutionised our understanding is the range of um, 
digitization programs that are going on now, not so much um, of the type that I've been involved in digitizing collections, which are held in the West, but digitization programs led by um, or funded through projects like the Endangered Archives Program, led through the British Library, and DreamSea, which is based in Southeast Asia, to digitize collections which are still held in situ all over Southeast Asia, um, in um, Pasantren, in Pondo, in Surau, in mosque libraries and local museums. And these give us a very, very different picture of the writing cultures of, um, of Southeast Asia, which are, um, you know, heavily influenced by Islamic um, theological um, civilization, if you would like to put it like that. So with a great emphasis on the core canonical texts of Islam, which are written in Arabic, so copies of the Quran, of tafsir, of um, collections of prayers, of Arabic grammars. There was such um, a, a major, the study of the Arabic language was a very, very major um, element. So uh, just for example, there's a collection of manuscripts held in a Pesantren library in East Java, which was which just been digitized. Um, there are about in three Pesantren, there are about 130 manuscripts. And of those manuscripts, almost all are in Arabic and there's only one which is in Javanese. And that is a literary work. It's the Tales of the Prophets. Um, but even so, it's an, an Islamic literary work. So I think that gives you an idea of, of despite the impact and despite its cultural and literary and aesthetic value of Malay literary works, um, how it sits in the bigger picture of what was written and studied um, and known about in the Malay world. And so I think this is how we, why we have to um, rethink our priorities. But of course, what was collected by European colonial scholars had a very lasting impact because these manuscripts went into libraries in Britain and in the Netherlands, and then those same manuscripts shaped the curricula in universities. So if you went to um, university to study Malay, you would study Malay literature. And it um, and that, and the same thing had a knock-on effect back in Southeast Asia. So when University Malaya was set up, you know the Jabatan Pengajian Malayu, the focus was on the teaching and study of Malay literature. Um, I think that's all well and good because Malay literature is incredibly important. But I think one also needs to see it in its broader context and its correct positioning within Malay written culture and Malay intellectual culture. And yet, though, you say written culture, uh, if I was to choose a material for preserving thought I, in, in the tropics in Asia, I would not choose paper. <laughs> it is the most ill-suited way to preserve thought. And I think that surely intellectual thought, memory, you know, ideas and stories would have been circulated not on paper, perhaps... It, by looking at, are we overemphasizing the importance of what has been left on paper? Um, well, you know, great question, but um, I suppose, but in a sense, that's the difference, the definition of history, isn't it? It's what we know from from writing. I mean, we talk about prehistory, prehistoric sources, and that's when we have no writing. So, like it or not. Um, writing captures um, thoughts at a particular stage in time. Um, actually, it's particularly um, in some ways the ephemerality of paper and the fact that it degrades in time um, does mean that we have 
a whole series of references. And so we can read each manuscript as what it captures at that moment in time. And again, that's, this is the important thing. For most Malay, manus, Malay texts, they might have been um, things like the Hikayat Raja Pasai, which tells, which is this so important. We have um, a manuscript from the British Library. It's the earliest Malay historical chronicle, and it tells of the Islamization, the coming of Islam to Sumatra, and the conversion of the first kingdom in the Malay world in Pasai. So the text was probably composed in the 14th century, but it's only known from manuscripts which date from the late 18th and the 19th century. So three or 400 years have gone by. And so when we read those manuscripts today, we have to be remind ourselves all the time that they're, that they have a core dating from the 14th century, but one has to be very careful and judge them as reflecting the 18th century capture and perpetuation of a 14th century thought. So you're absolutely right in that, um, of course, the real answer, um, the real reflection of um, what was thought and argued and debated and, and believed at a time would be in um, people's thoughts and what was spoken. And today, of course, we do have the tools to capture um, this through record, through recordings as you know, through radio as we're doing now or through digitization. But in the past, um, it was only paper. But I'll give you one example of how one can, um, and this is something again, when um, manuscript in the British Library, which it's only through the very close engagement and ha of having to prepare these manuscripts for digitization and, and putting them online that I was able to, to notice. There's a manuscript, I think it's one of the Punji stories, you know, one of these wonderful sort of very um, lush um, pre-Islamic stories based on a Javanese prototype in, in Malay. It might be, I think it's Hikayat Chakol Wanangpati. Um, so it's a, exactly the kind of um, pre-Islamic story with lots of, you know, Indra Kayangan and people flying through the air and Nagas and things like that, that the Islamic, that the ulama would have disapproved of. But rather than um, burying or burning or negating this manuscript, um, this scribe has copied out the manuscript, but he's given kind of written health warnings at beginning and at and end saying, don't believe this story. It's just any bohong, you know, it's, it's, it's just lies. And across the top of every single page, the scribe has written, Jangan berimankan ini. So don't internalize it. Don't um, accept this in good faith. So you've got the story in front of you, but you've got the Islamic health warning on every single page. And so this is how you've got an, a really old pre-Islamic story, but you also get an inkling of um, the reactions to it at that moment in time about 200 years ago in the Malay world. So I think manuscripts, even though you're absolutely right, they decay, they're not the best um, the best um, medium necessarily for, for capturing everything. I think, you know, where we are now in academic terms, there's an increased emphasis on the study of, of what we call paratext, which is not just the writing of the story itself, but it's all the kind of doodles, annotations, notes that you find on a manuscript, which tell you so much about the culture in which it was written and enjoyed. And also things like um, the materiality of the manuscript, the decoration, illumination, and all that gives them a fuller picture than you would have got, say, in the 19th century when you were through the old, you know, emphasis on philology and the classical ideal of just studying the text itself. So I think we are in, in a slightly better place now to, to interpret these texts. As we wind up, we come to an end now. Uh, I just want to tell, tell listeners that uh, Annabel Gallup's uh, Twitter feed is 
one of the best things out there in Twitterverse. You're, you're always releasing new digitized documents and giving a really, uh, really uh, interesting uh, descriptions of them. And uh, as we come to an end, I just want to ask, uh, with the British Library collection and indeed other collections going digital, uh, what what would you hope, what would you imagine could happen with people being able to access these older texts? What do you think people might uh, understand from a Malaysian perspective about their own heritage? Mm. Um, this, it's, again, it's a great question. And literally, I've just been writing a blog, which is not published yet, but it's on the impact of the digitization program. It's quite a good time to write it about two or three years on. And there are lots of different impacts, and some of them are quite traditional and um, at sort of in an academic sense. Like, you know, when we digitize the material, we put it out there on the internet with a, a, a public domain Creative Commons license. This is quite important. What it means is that anyone, anywhere can use the material without having to ask permission from the British Library. So you can research it, you can publish it, you can do whatever you like with it. And so, you know, some of the outcomes are quite traditional, like Dewan Bahasa has just published one of our manuscripts. Um, it's the Hikayat Ular Nankawang, which is only found, you know, in the library. And, you know, that that's all all good. What I'm more excited about have been all the publications by Fixie in Kuala Lumpur because, you know, this is a non-traditional indie publisher with a much greater reach, um, targeting a completely different um, audience. And I really love the fact that they've published two of our, the British Library manuscripts, Hikayat Raja Babi and also Hikayat, um, Hikayat Nabi Yusuf. And these have been packaged and aimed at a completely different audience. The Hikayat Raja Babi, I have to say it's, you know, everyone gets very excited because of the title, because it's very difficult to conceive that there is a traditional Malay Hikayat called Hikayat Raja Babi. But when you read it, you understand it. The poor, this is the story of a poor prince who is cursed to be born as a pig because his father, well, he rejected all his other wives who put a curse on, on, on his wife who became pregnant. So it absolutely fits within the, you know, the Malay consciousness of, of Babi is not being something that you, you, know, you, you want to be. But the story is full of fight scenes. So it's a perfect sort of target for the manga silat um, story, aficionados. And it's been packaged just like that with, um, with, with stories, with, with pictures, illustrations of the fight scenes. So that's one outcome I really like that these rich stories, centuries old stories are reaching new audiences. What I also really love is when our manuscripts are used by artists. Um, they're, in, you know, artists come and look at the illumination and the decoration in the manuscripts and then are inspired to reuse them in new ways. And there's one particular artist in Kedah, Hafizan Halim, who has been really inspired by the beautiful illuminated letters and has taken these and made um, frames for um, Islamic calligraphy, like the Surat Yasin, which he has put in a frame. So I think there are so many different ways um, of things that are things that can be done. And this is really exciting. Um, and hopefully there'll be lots more to come. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you very much, uh, Annabel Gallup, uh, head curator of the Malay Collection at uh, the British Library. And uh, Anna Malaysian, I'm claiming you for Malaysia. You have no choice in the matter. And uh, we will catch up again one day, I'm sure. Thank you very much. And um, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.